0: Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy.
1: When is the impossible possible? This month on the Naked Astronomy podcast, we'll find out how astronomers discovered four pairs of impossible stars so close together that they orbit each other in just a few hours. I'm Ben Valsler, and this month I'm joined by Dominic Ford, who has shed his lab coat to become a fully-fledged member of the Naked Scientists.
2: Hello. Also coming up, we'll hear how researchers benefit from the efforts of citizen science and get the latest news from the Royal Astronomical Society. And we've got more answers to
1: your space science questions. This is Naked Astronomy.
0: Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy.
1: Many stars exist in a system known as a binary couple, where two stars orbit around a common centre of mass. Most binary stars are thought to have formed very close to each other, and they would then remain in orbit and evolve together. Years of observations have shown no binaries with orbital periods of less than five hours, so it's believed that stars forming that close together would rapidly merge into one big star. But now, researchers have spotted a number of binary star systems that simply shouldn't exist. Red dwarf stars that orbit in just two and a half hours. Simon Hodgkin from the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge explained what they were looking for when they made this chance discovery. The project is an opportunistic project. I'll go
3: into the background a bit to explain the motivation for it. We realized that there was a little bit of time on Euclid, which has got this fantastic large-format infrared camera, which covers a huge area in the sky, about three-quarters of a square degree, so it's bigger than the size of the moon. And it's a little bit of time that was never being used because uh, the, the instrument was dedicated to a large area survey over the whole sky and some very deep cosmological surveys. But they all want good seeing, and they all need good weather. So we realized there was an opportunity to design a program which could take use of the the poor-seeing conditions when the image quality is not so good, and um, stare at the same stars again and again and again. Now, the primary goal was to look for planets around very low-mass stars. Uh, The instrument works in the infrared. Very low-mass stars are very cool. They're 3,000 Kelvin, give or take. And so we're trying to maximize the number of low-mass stars we can see at one time and then look for the signature of a transiting planet going across the, the face of the star. So we're looking for these characteristic dips. To do that, typically you need to stare at the same star for years. And eventually, you'll start to see the signal repeat, and you can search for periodic signals and say, ah, we found a planet. So far, we've found two planets, so that's good, but not around the low-mass stars. Around the low-mass stars, the M stars, which are the most common stars in the galaxy, we found no planets at all. Do you think that's because they're not there, or is it just that we need to look at them for a bit longer? So we're really only sensitive to the biggest planets and it's starting to look like big planets don't form around small stars. Um, we're trying to constrain the numbers of big planets around small stars and at the moment the survey doesn't have enough grasp because we didn't get as much time as we'd hoped and now they're going to close Euclid. So unfortunately I think it'll end up being kind of unanswered. We still don't really know the rate of formation of these big planets or so Jupiter-sized planets around small stars. It's Certainly they're no more common than around solar-type stars, but we were hoping to get a, a bit more a bit more of a constraint on that and maybe even find some. Uh, we know there are small stars with big planets. They do exist. They do form. We were hoping to measure the rate more precisely. and Well, if we can carry on observing, we
1: hope to do that. And as is so often the case with all sorts of science, you were looking for one thing, but you found something else, something that's quite hard to explain.
3: Yeah, so we found something very unexpected. We found... Um, Binary stars, the signature of a binary star in its light curve, so that's its brightness as a function of its of the time. Um, we find this signature of these very short period binary stars. So these are binary stars that have less than five-hour periods. And um, what happens is one star passes in front of the other star and it causes the brightness to, to dip appreciably, by a lot, by 10% or 20%, and then come up again as you see two stars edge on, and then the other one goes in front of the other. So they're they're pairs of stars. They look more or less like twins, but they're going around each other extremely fast, uh, much faster than any of the theories predicted. They should be going around each other. And we found four of these systems. And so that that was the basis of the publication, was
1: these four extremely fast orbiting binary stars. We think that most of the stars in the universe are probably in these binary pairs, and presumably you get a a full range of of very far apart with very long orbital periods down to very short ones. So why is it a surprise to find these ones that are going so quickly?
3: That's right, and the formation is the key here. So these stars in these, uh, so the fastest one is a a two-and-a-half-hour period, roughly. If they had formed like that, the stars would have been overlapping during the formation process, so they would have merged. So they need to have started off further apart than we measure them today. So they need to have grown together over time. Now, if we take the standard model for the way binary stars evolve over time, so that's to do with the rate at which they lose angular momentum, uh, it would take the age of the universe for them to grow that close together. And these stars aren't that old. They're roughly the same age as the sun, we think. We don't know exactly how old they are. But uh, there just simply isn't enough time to get these four pairs of binary stars that close to each other, uh, using the kind of models of of the rate of angular momentum loss that we typically use in astronomy. So we have to rethink how these stars evolve. And what sort of ideas are you coming up with? (laughs) That's a very good question. Um, So the traditional model is that the stars have winds, and the, the wind is carrying angular momentum away from the stars, so they gradually spin down over time, so they get to slower and slower rotation. The amount of angular momentum they lose depends on how active they are, um, how magnetically active they are. So in the standard model, these stars should just spin down over time, get slower and slower and slower. If you put a star in a binary, then as you throw away angular momentum from a single star in a binary, what happens is the two stars move together. So that's all well and good. And then the stars, because they're moving together, the binary orbit needs to adjust and it needs to speed up. And because the stars become synchronized they need to rotate at the same rate as they orbit each other, so they spin up again. So you end up in this situation where their angular momentum loss rate is increased and they move together. Now, the trouble is the standard model says they move together much too slowly. Even taking all this into account, it's much too slow. So we need to increase the rate at which they lose angular momentum. To do that, that means they need to have much stronger magnetic fields than we thought, or they need to be much windier. Not sure if that's a good way to put it than we previously thought. They need to be losing mass more quickly than we previously thought. Or there's another get-out, which is they've had an interaction with another body. Perhaps earlier on in their life, there was a third star in the system or a flyby by another object, and it kicked them to be much closer together. We expect that to be a pretty rare event. Um, The fact that we found four might be an important uh, clue as to how they formed and what happened early on in their lives. So, at the moment, we don't know if the stars are actually in contact or not. From the shape of the light curve, we think they're very close to being in contact. The missing part of the puzzle is to measure the velocities of the stars. So we don't know exactly how fast the stars are going as a velocity, which will tell us how far apart they really are, and then we can compare that to their radii and see if they're actually touching. What we do suspect is that... We should be able to measure the rate at which they're growing towards each other. So, we have five years of measurement so far. I can see a hint that the period may be changing already, that we can measure the rate at which they're going together. It's still just a hint. So, we need to go back to the telescope and we need to measure them in a lot more detail. We need to measure their velocities and we need to measure their periods very, very precisely.
1: What do we know about the individual stars themselves? Do all eight of these in your four pairs have something in common that could give us some clues as to what's actually going on?
3: We know very little about them so far. They're intrinsically very faint objects. Uh, We haven't measured much in the way of spectroscopy. We've measured very low dispersion spectroscopy, and that tells us roughly their temperatures. The thing they all have in common is they're very cool objects, so they're much cooler than our sun, 3,500 Kelvin and cooler. So they're the most common kind of star in the galaxy. We see them everywhere when you look close enough. But they're also some of the faintest objects in the galaxy. So we don't know that much about them. And so their atmospheres are quite complicated. We suspect the stars are fully convective, um, at least the very lowest mass ones. Uh, Some of them are two-tenths of the mass of the sun. So that's 0.2 solar masses. And they'll be fully convective stars, so they don't behave like the sun but we don't know what their atmospheres look like we don't know how spotty they are particularly we don't know the strengths of magnetic fields we don't know how fast they're rotating and we don't know how fast they're orbiting each other yet and for that we need high resolution spectroscopy we also don't know much about their chemical abundances and again high resolution spectroscopy is the way forward there but it will need a lot of telescope time or very large aperture telescopes
1: so given that you've found four of these pairs essentially by accident does that suggest mm-hmm. that they're probably actually quite common and and these aren't strange mm-hmm. outliers that need weird new physics but actually yeah. we've just got the wrong idea about binary pairs altogether very close in time
3: to our publication A uh, publication came out from superwasp uh, the superwasp project found a number of very fast binaries and the Sloan survey, they also did a time result survey on Park the Sky, and they found a very fast binary as well. So all at once, suddenly we had a number of these populations. So you might think, oh, they're much more common than we thought. We've just not looked properly before. But actually, the Sloan survey, um, they managed to do some statistics on the occurrence of these, and it looks like they are intrinsically quite rare. So there are two, two ways of thinking of this. Either not many of them form, but another way is they're transient phenomena, that the stars grow together on quite a short timescale. The Sloan binary, is, its period is changing by 8 seconds a year. Um, when they estimate how long it will live, it's probably only 1,000 years, which means in terms of the lifetime of the universe, these very short-lived objects. So we need to make the same measurement for our four binaries, and if they're moving at similar um, rates of, of period change, then they will also merge. What the end products of the merger look like will be interesting to uh, tie them into our understanding of single stars and see if we can find things that were perhaps used to be binary stars. So it's not clear if they're intrinsically rare or intrinsically
1: short-lived phenomena. So while you are working out how you go about studying them a bit further, finding telescope time, finding the right telescopes, what do you need the theorists to be doing to tell you where to look?
3: (laughs) So the theorists could help, help a lot, in, and they'll probably say, oh, it's simple. All you have to do is change the mass loss rates, for example, from these stars. Or well, you haven't handled the magnetic fields correctly. Uh, usually it's magnetic fields or dust when there's a problem in astrophysics that needs to be tweaked. So I'm sure, there's, um, I'm sure that it will encourage the theoreticians to have a closer look at maybe how close together you can form stars before they overlap or how quickly they lose mass, how quickly they lose angular momentum. Failing that, if they really can't tweak those theories by enough to explain these fast binaries, then it's the dynamicists who have to come in and work out the rates of these uh, third-body interactions. And maybe you'll have something useful to say about the behavior in the environments these stars were born in, so perhaps in dense environments,
1: and tell us about how often these interactions happen. Simon Hodgkin from the Institute of Astronomy here in Cambridge, explaining how the theories now need to catch up with our observations of binary stars that were previously thought to be impossible.
2: Now, as usual, we've been putting your space science questions to our panel of researchers. And Magnus Carson asked if the universe has always been flat, which seemed like a perfect question for Andrew Ponson. The short answer is yes, the universe has
4: always been flat as far as we can tell. But the the questioner goes on to point out that we uh, measure this quantity called omega, which is related to the average density of stuff in the universe. And when this thing uh, equals the critical value of one, then we have a flat universe. Now, it's absolutely right that over time, the density of stuff in the universe does change. But... However, this value, omega, does not change because it's not only the density of stuff in the universe, it's actually a ratio. It's the ratio of the density of stuff in the universe divided by what we call the critical density. And the critical density also changes as a function of time. And it does so in just the right way that if the universe is exactly flat... In other words, if omega is one at any particular time, then the universe will carry on being exactly flat. In other words,
1: omega will still be one at some later time. Dominic, now that you've joined the ranks of the Naked Scientists, you'll be turning your astronomical expertise to interviewing guests in the future. But that doesn't get you out of answering astronomy questions. So first of all, could you have a go at this one? Edison J. Morace asks if the Moon someday will leave the Earth's orbit or could even collide with another planet in our solar system. What do you think?
2: It's certainly true that the Moon is moving away from the Earth at a rate of a few centimetres per year. And the reason why that's happening is that the Moon pulls the Earth's oceans up into tides every two and a half or so hours. Now those tides come about on the side of the Earth which is facing the Moon because the Moon's gravity there is slightly stronger than elsewhere and that's pulling the water up into a bulge. And there's a second tide on the far side where the Moon's gravity is slightly weaker and the water is being pulled down the surface of the Earth slightly less strongly. Now, a lot of energy is being dissipated in pulling the water up into those tides, which are rotating around the Earth's surface every 12 and a half hours. And that energy would stop being dissipated if the Earth always turned the same face towards the Moon and that's a state called tidal locking. Now, the Moon is already tidally locked towards the Earth. The Moon always shows the same face towards the Earth, and that's why you always see the same features on the face of the Moon, regardless of when you look at it. But the Earth is not yet tidally locked towards the Moon. But as the energy is being dissipated, the Earth's rotation is being slowed down gradually so that the Earth would only rotate around about once a month. And the Moon will also orbit slightly more slowly around the Earth. And that means it's moving further away from us. Now, in fact, this tidal locking will take about 50 billion years to occur. And even then, the Moon will still be in our gravitational field and bound gravitationally to the Earth. The problem is it won't actually even have a chance to get there. Because the sun is going to turn into a red giant star in about 5 billion years' time. And at that point, the Earth and the moon will be totally engulfed in the sun's outer envelope. And that's always going to happen much sooner than tidal locking will occur with the moon. So the moon will never get a chance to reach that state. And so
1: to think about the the second part of his question, this of course means it's never going to get far enough away from Earth to have an opportunity to collide with any of our neighbouring planets.
2: Uh, That's right I mean actually even if it did have those 50 billion years to reach this tidal lock state it would still be gravitationally bound to us it would still be orbiting the earth. So we
1: can obviously see evidence from the reflectors that we've put on the moon that 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 shows us that the moon is moving away by a few centimetres a year. Can we measure the effect that the moon is having on earth slowing down the earth's orbit?
2: Unfortunately we can't because there are a lot of processes which affect the rate at which the Earth rotates, which does vary measurably from one year to the next. Now, we think that earthquakes moving rocks on the Earth's surface change the Earth's moment of inertia and change its rotation rate measurably. We think ocean currents also affect the mass distribution on the surface of the Earth. We can't predict... How fast the Earth will rotate in the future is something we measure and we then try and work out what has caused particular changes. So in terms of identifying a contribution from the Moon, unfortunately that's not possible at the moment.
1: Well, thank you, Dominic, and we'll have more space science questions coming up very soon. Still to come, we'll hear from Robert Massey with this month's roundup of news from the Royal Astronomical Society. But first, although we think of Earth as a blue planet, models of solar system formation suggest that Earth really should be much wetter than it is. And now, new understanding of how planets form could explain why we're not all underwater. Current understanding of how our solar system formed has planets accreting from a protoplanetary disk of dust and ice known as a proplid. Within this disk lies a so-called snow line, where the temperature and solar radiation is sufficient to melt ice and blow away the water. Early on, radiation from the sun strips electrons off all of this material, leaving it ionised. And this then leads to the material falling in towards the star, heating up in the process, and that keeps the snow line further out. As the disk runs out of material and cools down, the snow line is brought inwards, and all of our models to date predict that it would have been at around 0.6 astronomical units, that's 60% of the distance between the Sun and the Earth today, at the time that the Earth formed. We know that objects that formed outside the snow line, such as Uranus and Neptune, have vast amounts of water. About 40% of their weight is water. But Earth, at just 0.023% water by weight, simply doesn't fit with the models. Writing in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, Rebecca Martin and Mario Livio from the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore addressed this watery mystery. They reasoned that disks around young stars can't become fully ionised because there simply isn't enough heat and radiation to do so. This then changes the dynamics of the material in the disk, it disrupts the mechanisms that lead to debris migrating towards the star, and it creates a sort of dead zone, a plug, that extends to a few astronomical units beyond the Sun. The dead zone will gradually increase in density, and that leads to heating, and that pushes back the snow line. Dry planets like the Earth can then form within this warmer region just outside the dead zone. This modified version of existing models explains the unexpectedly dry Earth, as well as why Mercury, Venus and Mars are also very dry planets – It also puts forward the idea that an icy ring could form on the inside of the dead zone, from which things like hot Jupiters could then form very close to their parent star, another planetary formation mystery. Now, this model certainly doesn't apply to every type of star, but it does help to fill in our understanding of how our solar system has evolved.
2: Now, I've spotted a paper on a similar theme in the journal Nature Geoscience, And this finds evidence of a very heavy episode of meteorite bombardment in the Earth's very early history. And this has to do with a problem in our understanding of how the Earth formed. Now, we think the Earth formed out of quite massive rocky bodies that collided with one another to form the planet. And because of the energy associated with those collisions, we think the early Earth was very hot it will have been molten, and that means in this early stage of its evolution it will have fractionated, which is to say that the heavy elements such as iron will have sunk to the centre of the Earth and formed the Earth's core, meanwhile lighter materials such as silicates will have floated on the top and have formed the rocky crust of the Earth. But that is what we see, isn't it?
1: We do know that Earth does have this iron core and does have a rocky outer crust.
2: That is mostly what we see, but there are certain elements called siderophiles. These are elements like rhenium and osmium, which bond very strongly with metallic iron. And we would have expected all of these elements to have sunk to the core with the iron, and we wouldn't expect to see them in any great abundance in the crust of the Earth. In fact, we do find significant traces of these elements. So the puzzle is, what are these elements doing in the crust of the Earth? And it's not a unique property to the Earth. We also see them on the Moon and on Mars. So whatever process put them there, it must be working elsewhere in the solar system as well. Now, there are various theories to explain this. It could be that the fractionation happened very quickly and was comparatively incomplete. Or it could be that there was a substantial late accretion of material to the Earth after it had solidified, and this delivered the elements to the crust of the Earth later on in the solar system's evolution. Now, writing this month in the journal Nature Geoscience, James Day of the Scripps Institute for Oceanography in California and his colleagues shed some interesting new evidence on this puzzle. And they looked at the siderophile content of a selection of meteorites which had fallen to the Earth and which belonged to a family known as diogenites. And these are meteorites that we think have been broken off the surface of the asteroid Vesta in its very early history. In fact, we think these meteorites were broken off only a few million years after the asteroid formed. And what's interesting is that these meteorites have a huge spread of siderophile content. Some of them have very similar content to the Earth, but others are almost completely free of siderophiles. And it's very hard to explain how those meteorites could have formed, unless at some point in its early history, Vesta was almost completely fractionated with the siderophiles in its core. So this strongly suggests that in the case of Vesta at least, there was at some point very complete fractionation with all the siderophiles in the core and that later on, but only within a few million years of its forming, a vast quantity of material was delivered to its crust that delivered a fresh supply of siderophiles to its surface. Now in the case of the Earth, the evidence is lost because the Earth has a dynamic volcanic surface which is continually being renewed by volcanic eruptions which are generating new surface. But this does seem to explain a mechanism by which the Earth also could have ended up with siderophiles in its crust. So what sorts of processes
1: could it be that would be delivering this amount of siderophiles if the asteroids themselves had also been through this fractionation process? then presumably this is something that's new to the solar system that provides this new material.
2: The early solar system was a very violent place. And just a few million years before this, you had very large rocky bodies colliding with one another to form planets like the Earth and Mars. And it's very probable that you still had a lot of fragments of rock which may actually have been thrown off in these very violent collisions only a few million years earlier. And these would have been raining down onto the surface of planets and asteroids like the Earth and like Vesta.
1: So do we think that all of these materials turned up in in this one huge bombardment event or have we just been steadily accumulating these siderophiles ever since that fractionation happened? Is it just a long, slow process?
2: In fact, there are quite reliable ways by which you can date meteorites and you can tell when they left the surface of their parent body you can look at how long we think the rock in these meteorites has been in the crystalline state. And in the case of diogenites, they've been in the crystalline state for around 4.6 billion years. And we can actually date them to within 2 or 3 million years of the formation of Vesta itself. So we know these left the surface very early, and so these siderophiles must have been delivered within a few million years of Vesta's formation.
1: So that really does give us a timeline for these things turning up?
2: It all happened very quickly. And
1: now, with more astronomical news and things to watch out for in the night sky this month, here's Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society.
0: There's a lot going on in the world of astronomy, as ever, and I thought I'd uh, focus on three things. The first is a a really uh, quite extraordinary discovery that probably deserves a bit more credit and publicity uh, of these so-called dark galaxies. Now, a galaxy, the kind of thing that we're, I'd say, familiar, I probably should hesitate to say that, but a galaxy is a big sort of assembly of stars, or at least that's the ones that we're used to seeing. So the one we live in, the Milky Way, has something like three to 500,000 million stars, so really a vast number of them. And then it's also got gas and dust. Now, these objects... If you add up all the light from them are quite bright, that doesn't mean that, you know, we see most of them as bright because they also typically tend to be a long way off, perhaps millions or even billions of light years away from the Earth. And when something is that far away, it's inevitably very faint. But nonetheless, you know, they are objects that contain a lot of stars. But the European Southern Observatory and astronomers using that and specifically the very large telescope and eight meter telescope in Chile, have looked at the galaxies in the early universe and what they were looking for were objects that hadn't yet formed stars and as a result they call them dark galaxies because they're not shining yet now you and I would logically think well dark galaxy means how on earth do you see it and the answer is they looked for something nearby that was illuminating it in ultraviolet so that it fluoresced in in much the same way I don't know if you go to a sort of cheesy disco or you went like me to cheesy discos in the late 1980s um, if you were wearing anything white that had been washed then it would would glow under the, the UV disco lights so the scientists involved in this uh, in, in Zurich and in California have managed to uh, find these objects for the first time. And it's, it's a big step forward because there would have been a period in the early universe, we think, when there were objects which were basically clumps of gas and dust that were going on to
1: form stars. And then those objects in turn would go on to form the galaxies we see today. So what is the source that they're using? What is their enormous astronomical blacklight?
0: Well, they're using a nearby quasar, an object that emits a lot of ultraviolet light. Um, I mean, you could almost have a whole discussion about this as well, but quasars are very bright objects. They've, they're thought to be where material is falling into a black hole, and as it goes in, it shines very, very brightly. Um, there aren't that many close to us, actually. They tend to be at very large distances, but because they're so bright, we, we can spot them. And the light from this, the ultraviolet radiation from this, is lighting up these dark objects. I mean, if it wasn't there, we basically wouldn't be able to see them, but the fact that we can see a number of them, suggest that there are an awful lot of them out there, that, uh, you know, if you multiply this very small field of view, you take it across the whole sky,
1: there must be literally billions of them. So is this the first time we've really been able to observe these dark galaxies? And do they look like we expected them to? This is certainly the the first
0: time that we've got a visual discovery of this kind. And there's lots of implied things there. I mean, you know, if you think about the way that we go from the cosmic microwave background, the kind of very last surface of the universe that we can see, or if you like perhaps a better word of way of describing it, is the very earliest light that we can see in the universe through to the, the galaxies and the stars that we're familiar with today. There's a whole range of steps through that. And this is an important part of that. So what we're doing here is starting to track back to the time when the very first galaxies were forming. And, and that this, is, this is an exciting time. I mean, when you get the, the larger telescopes on the stream at the end of the decade, the EELT, the European Extremely Large Telescope, and the James Webb Space Telescope that'll be in orbit around the Earth from 2018, 2019 or so, they should be able to study things like this in even more detail.
1: And now going from very dark galaxies to something we can see in our own night sky, we have a meteor shower to look out for later on this month.
0: We do. Uh, It's the annual Perseids meteor shower. The best time in the UK will be either early on the morning of the 12th of August or early on the morning of the 13th of August, Um, because the, the shower maximum is roughly between these two times. But it's a very reliable source of meteors or shooting stars. And I think most people have seen a shooting star or a meteor once in their life. You know, you look up and you see this streak of light. And the frustrating thing I always find is if you see it, it's too late to point it out to anybody else because, you know, quite often they only last about half a second. But they can be quite spectacular. The Perseids is an example where the Earth runs into a stream of clumpier material. It's... these. these Meteors, I should explain, are caused by really quite small particles of dust and sand-sized objects and perhaps occasionally things up to pebble size. But nonetheless, because they're coming into the atmosphere at such high speed, they burn up very quickly, the uh, air around them gets superheated, and that's the the streak of light we see as a meteor. Now, in the case of the Perseids, over a period from late July through to late August, you get this shower which ramps up in intensity, and around the 12th or so is about the, the peak, when you might see around 60 an hour if you're lucky. Again, it's one of those things where you can't put a precise number on it because it depends exactly how thick the clump of stuff we go through is. But if you've got a clear sky, there is a bit of moon in the sky, which doesn't help. But if you put that behind you and you've got a clear sky and you're up in early in the morning on the 12th, I'd be surprised if you didn't see anything. It really is something to get up for. If you've got a warm night and the weather's nice.
1: Excellent. And from things showering down onto Earth, we go to a man-made object landing on the surface of Mars. Tell me more about Curiosity.
0: Curiosity is uh, NASA's flagship Mars mission that's set to land on the uh, the red planet in early August, and it is it looks like a pretty impressive piece of work. It's going to be a large rover. It's going to drive around the surface of Mars for a long time. Like its predecessors, it'll be remote-controlled from the Earth. I and mean, if you imagine the uh, the ultimate remote-controlled car where you sit in California or somewhere, probably with a joystick, I've never done this, and, and steer this thing that's uh, millions of miles away, I think, I think it must be a lot of fun. But the, the serious work is about landing this thing Getting it onto the surface and exploring to see how habitable Mars is now and how habitable it might have been in the past. Uh, I should stress that it's never been a particularly, or in recent times, it's never been a particularly clement place. It's pretty dry. It's got a thin atmosphere that lets lots of radiation from the sun onto its surface. And the thin atmosphere is also made of carbon dioxide, so it would be not only cold and hostile and radioactive to us, it would also be poisonous. But nonetheless, there is the thought that it's past Mars might just have hosted life or that, that there might be some primitive life deep within the surface today. And that's partly what the mission is about. It's also designed to prepare for, perhaps in 20 years' time, a, a, a mission for astronauts going there. Now, I think that's a long way off. It's been 20 years away for as long as I can remember, in fact, for more than 20 years. But nonetheless... I think it'll, it'll do some good science. Um, there are some really interesting things about it. I mean, it's using this uh, sky crane device to land on the surface, which has never been tried before, whereby the whole thing comes into the Martian atmosphere on a parachute. The parachute detaches. Some retro rockets fire to slow it down. And then another device with more rockets on it called a sky crane takes over and gently lowers the uh, rover onto the surface. And, you know, fingers crossed, because no one's ever tried this before. So uh, good luck to the engineers involved for designing this one and it'd be impressive if this
1: works that sounds very exciting i've always been amused by the idea of conversations between the people that designed the rover itself and the planetary scientists who say we want to land in this really exciting interesting area whereas the people designing the rover say we want to land in the flattest safest dullest <laughs> area we can see do we know whereabouts it's landing and, and how they've managed to come to a compromise
0: well, I mean, the compromises and these kind of things are, uh, you know, that's just how it has to be. It's landing in a place called Gale Crater, which has got a reasonably flat surface, but also some canyons and the, the landing ellipse, the kind of error in the region where it might come down is designed to avoid those, but also be close enough to the canyons and the features that they can go and have a look if they want to. So one of the other techniques they're using is a, as a descent camera and as the probe comes into the atmosphere, it'll basically be looking at the ground where it's coming in and using that, scientists on Earth can then decide where they want to take the rover. So in other words, work out more closely where they've landed and, and design their itinerary from there. But you're absolutely right. I mean, in theory, the best possible thing, I suppose, would be to try and land in, I don't know, one of the, uh, the caves that have been discovered on Mars or deep down in, uh, in one of the rift valleys, but that would be a pretty hard thing to do. On the other hand, if, if someday we do manage it, it's probably one of the most interesting spots to look at. Robert Massey from the RAS.
1: And if the skies are clear, do try and get out there and watch the Perseids. A few years ago, when the peak of the Perseids coincided with a new moon, I did put in the extra effort to get away from city lights, and it really does make a difference. It's quite a fantastic light show.
2: This is Naked Astronomy with Ben Valsler and me, Dominic Ford. Very soon we'll find out from Dr Karen Masters how citizen science projects like Galaxy Zoo and the Zooniverse are providing data that advances scientific research.
1: But first, massive landslides on Saturn's moon Iapetus, as studied by the Cassini mission, can help us to understand a rare type of landslide seen down here on Earth and on Mars, according to research published in the journal Nature Geoscience this month. Long runout landslides are a type of avalanche that travel much further than expected. On Earth, a landslide is expected generally to travel a horizontal distance that is less than twice the height that the material has fallen. In long runout landslides, also known as stirstroms, the horizontal distance can be 20 or 30 times the vertical distance. An as yet unidentified physical process is reducing the friction that usually brings landslides to a halt. Many hypotheses have been proposed to explain this. It could be lubrication with a layer of trapped air, with powdered rock, or water acting to reduce friction. Trapped air, for example, can't explain stirrstroms observed on the Moon or on the Martian moon of Phobos. Now, Geoffrey Moore from the NASA Ames Research Centre in California suggests that Iapetus, the third largest of Saturn's moons, could be an excellent laboratory for studying long run-out landslides. This is partly because the effect of two of the potential explanations, trapped atmosphere and groundwater, is of course negligible, and that allows us to really home in on a working hypothesis. Iapetus is a very unusual moon. It consists mainly of ice and has a huge mountain range 12 miles high around its bulging equator. Imaging from the Cassini mission suggests that it is unique in its frequency and extent of these long run-out landslides. Moore and colleagues identified 30 landslides in Cassini images, the longest of which had travelled an astounding 80 kilometres. They were then able to determine the ratio of drop height to run-out length, which gives an idea of the coefficient of friction of the sliding debris, and they can compare that with avalanches that we've seen elsewhere. Plotting these ratios against one another did not give credence to any of the existing hypotheses. Now, although these observations don't yet explain the physics behind this type of landslide, anything that we can learn from Iapetus can then be applied to avalanches here on Earth and may help to put constraints on geological effects on Earth and beyond.
2: Now, moving to much larger scales, most galaxies, we think, have supermassive black holes at their centres, but we don't really understand how they form. And some theoretical modelling this month by Barry McKernan of the City University of New York and his colleagues sheds some interesting light on how these objects might acquire their incredible masses of many millions of times the mass of the Sun. Now, the problem is, whilst we know how small black holes can form of masses perhaps a few ten times the mass of the Sun, we don't know how these black holes can get up to masses of millions times the mass of the Sun. Now, we know that at the end of their lives, massive stars form what we call type 2 supernovae, and the end product of that is a black hole which might weigh a few times the mass of the Sun up to a few tens of times the mass of the Sun. But once that supernova has happened, the black hole is essentially left in the vacuum of deep space. and Most of the volume of the Milky Way galaxy, for example, is just a deep vacuum with not very much gas there and with stars separated by many light years. So the chance of this black hole encountering other stars or dense gas clouds and acquiring significant extra mass is actually quite slim. And so there's the question, how can this black hole grow to become a supermassive black hole of many millions of times the mass of the Sun at the centre of the galaxy. Now what Barry McKernan has modelled is what would happen if such a black hole formed close to the core of a galaxy like the Milky Way. And this is quite a dense environment with a cluster of stars and gas which is accreting down towards the central supermassive black hole in the centre of the Milky Way. So it's quite a dense environment and there's quite a lot of material there. And what he has found in his modelling is that actually there is enough gas there if the black hole is moving through the accretion disk that it can pick up significant extra mass and become what we call an intermediate mass black hole on its way towards becoming a really very massive object. Now, there's obviously a bit of a chicken and egg situation here, because you can form intermediate mass black holes, but only in the dense environments that you find around supermassive black holes, for example, at the center of our galaxy. But obviously, it could be that you can have very dense environments even before you have a supermassive black hole in the center of a galaxy. And so this does seem to be quite a promising beginning for an understanding of how you could form a very massive black hole close to the centre of a galaxy.
1: Have we observed any galaxies to date that don't seem to have a large black hole in the middle?
2: We have very strong evidence for very massive black holes at the centre of a number of nearby galaxies, That evidence comes from stars close to the centre of these galaxies, which are orbiting very quickly around some unseen mass. In fact, we think our nearest neighbour, Andromeda, possibly has two black holes very close to one another, close to its centre. Now, this is actually only science that we've been doing in the past 20 years or so, but most of the galaxies that have been studied in detail have shown evidence of having black holes at their centres. So at the moment, it appears that most galaxies have supermassive black holes at their centres.
1: My other question would be about the actual process of forming the black hole. The the type 2 supernovae are enormously destructive and presumably would blow away a lot of the the gas and the other material that are in the immediate vicinity of that star. So it must need to be a, a very dense area to survive That explosion and still have enough material close enough to then be accreted onto the black hole.
2: The Type 2 supernova will certainly clear the immediate neighbourhood of the stars, but in fact at the tremendous velocities that stars travel around in the galaxy it will fairly quickly within a few million years move into other neighbourhoods of the galaxy where there may be gas present.
1: And on the topic of black holes, Jerry has emailed in to ask if a black hole is born at the edge of a galaxy, rather than near the centre, as we've been talking about, would it actually get pulled into the
2: centre? Well, in fact, no, it wouldn't. And that's part of the reason why it's so difficult to form very massive black holes. And a good analogy for this would be the Earth, which circles the Sun, and it has a certain amount of gravitational energy with respect to the Sun but it doesn't spiral in towards the sun. And the reason why it doesn't spiral in towards the sun is because there's no mechanism by which it can lose its gravitational energy. If there was some friction, if, for example, there was gas in this solar system which was slowing the Earth down in its orbit, then that would cause it to spiral in towards the sun. Now, in everyday life, we're obviously normally used to situations where there's friction. So if you roll a ball along the surface, there's friction there, and that will cause the ball to stop rolling. But in the deep vacuum of space, there is no friction there, so you don't lose your gravitational energy, so the Earth carries on orbiting the Sun. And likewise, the galaxy is quite a good vacuum, and that means if a black hole is circling around the centre of the galaxy, it will just carry on orbiting at that radius from the centre of the galaxy unless it encounters a very dense environment like a gas cloud which dissipates its kinetic and gravitational energy.
1: So without something to change its momentum, it's just going to keep going around the outside of the galaxy and no, it will never get pulled into the centre.
2: That's right. That's the principle of the conservation of energy, but unless you've got something to drain that energy out of the object, it's going to carry on orbiting in exactly the same way. Thank you, Dominic, and thank you, Jerry, for your question.
1: Many thousands of people have given their time and energy to be part of projects like Galaxy Zoo, classifying galaxies in images from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. But how is this translated into new scientific research? To find out, I met Dr. Karen Masters from the Institute of Cosmology and Gravitation at the University of Portsmouth.
5: The Galaxy Zoo classifications, for me, at some level, are just another source of data on the galaxies. Um, we do the same kind of data reduction that we do to the other data to the classifications. The beauty of Galaxy Zoo classifications for a scientist is you get uh, multiple independent classifications of the morphology of a galaxy. So the spread in those answers, uh, you know, how, how well all the people who look at the galaxy agree on the morphology gives you not only what the morphology most likely is but a sense of how easy it was to tell that so we kind of have morphologies with errors from galaxy zoo which is very nice for scientists some of our critics say you know we're going away from sort of the objective morphology that the field had moved to trying to use computer algorithms to fit shapes do complicated things like looking at where the isophote shift and stuff like that but i actually entirely disagree i think our morphologies are very objective and we do have these errors because we're asking citizen scientists to help us and because they're so keen on the task we get to ask 20 30 sometimes even 40 people to classify each galaxy
1: and what is the existing data that you're adding to
5: i mostly work with the galaxy zoo sort of the original galaxy zoo sample which is galaxies from the sloan digital sky survey so this was this massive survey run off a dedicated telescope in america It's now surveyed, I think, something like 30% of the sky in very uniform optical bands, five colours, five filters. Um, So we have that information, and we have spectra for every galaxy, um, which tell us not only the types of elements that are in the galaxy, but also the redshift of the galaxy. So we know physically where these galaxies are, we know what colours they have, we know how bright they are. So we can derive things like their masses, how many stars they have, stuff like that. I also like to fold in other data from other sources, so I've done stuff using radio telescope data, looking at fractions of that area. That's what I've been working on currently. In the radio, you can get at all sorts of different things. What I've been looking at is the signature of neutral hydrogen, um, which we call the fuel for future star formation. It's basically just gas that's left over from the Big Bang, and it will, we assume, eventually turn into stars or or dissipate and become too... Uh, diffused to, to make stars so all sorts of data from different big surveys what's running right now at galaxy Zoo is doing classifications for galaxies um over half the age of the universe away um, that's using data from the Hubble Space Telescope and again those are all public data so as astronomers anyone has access to the brightnesses the colors and things like that
1: and what are the questions that you're trying to answer mm. in your research specifically yeah. what is it you're trying to get at
5: well, I'm very interested in how the different types of galaxies relate to each other and how, um, you know, what's the difference between a spiral galaxy and an elliptical and how that, there might be sort of an evolutionary process between the two. I've done work looking at the unusual red spirals. So typically we see that spiral galaxies are blue, elliptical galaxies are red. Um, galaxies who found this unusual class of very red spiral galaxies. So I've done quite a lot of work studying the properties of them trying to see how they fit in to the picture of galaxy evolution. And one of the things we discovered was that these red spirals are much more likely to have a bar, this linear structure of stars across the centre of the galaxy. And some of them are quite spectacular. With Galaxy Zoo, we have information on which of these galaxies are more or less likely to have bars. And I've been looking at what types of galaxies are more or less likely to have bars. And it would seem that the bar is related to whatever process turns spirals red.
1: It must be difficult or perhaps impossible to to tease apart the the physics of star formation from understanding the history of galaxy formation. Mm -hmm. If you've got the spectrographic information, can we start to say something about the way that stars then relate to their
5: galaxy? Yeah, that's right. The spectra can tell you about what types of stars are in a galaxy. To first order, the the light from a galaxy is just the light of all the stars in the galaxy added together. So even just the colours actually will tell you about the types of stars in the galaxy. Stars come in all different colours, but their colour is really strongly related to how massive they are. So very massive stars are very blue, very, very, very hot, and they burn very, very bright. And actually, they run out of fuel very, very quickly. So they only live for a very short time astronomically, <laughs> I mean like millions of years, um, and they live for a short time after they're born. Whereas lower-mass stars are much dimmer. They kind of get swamped by the bright stars, but they're, and they're also much redder. And they, but they last for, for really long times, like you know most of the age of the universe after they've formed. And so where you see a lot of blue stars, or where you see a blue galaxy, it means it's got some blue stars in it, which means it must have had star formation recently. Whereas if you see a red galaxy, it can't have any of those massive bright blue stars in it, so it can't have formed, or, or they have to be hidden, if we're going to be totally honest. They could be hidden in dust, that's the complication. But anyway, if they're not hidden in dust, it means they're not there. And uh, and so that galaxy can't be forming stars or can't have formed stars in the last few million years. And the spectra give you similar sorts of information um, and a little bit more about what types of stars. There's little complications about when exactly, what, what sort of generation of stars you're in and things like that. And you can learn things about how often supernova must have gone off by looking at the ratios of different elements because certain elements are only made in certain kinds of supernova and things.
1: We have what we call the main sequence of stars, and this is where we plot brightness versus mass, and yeah. we, can, we can see a clear demarcation in the types yeah. of stars and their colours and so on. Are we developing the same sort of thing for galaxies?
5: Oh um it's it's a little more complicated for galaxies just because you've also got dust in there and you've also got gas in there and you've you got other stuff going on but there's you know there are people who work and spend a lot of time modeling the stellar populations in galaxies it's a very important area of research because um we think that the mass of galaxies is is very central to how they evolve we think or we know that lower mass galaxies are typically spiral and typically are forming lots of stars today, whereas higher-mass galaxies, especially the most massive galaxies, are almost exclusively elliptical and not forming stars. And the red spirals fit in here as being the massive end of the spirals. So I guess to some extent we are getting this idea, but those masses come from modelling. They come from modelling the light, from modelling the spectra, and sort of making an estimate of the types of stars and the numbers of different types of stars that make up that mass. So that modelling is very important science.
1: So given that modelling is so key, what extra data do we now need to get to refine these models and and really make our image of the universe that bit better?
5: Well, what's really nice, actually, is to get an independent estimate of the mass of a galaxy. And we can do that by looking at how the stars in that galaxy or how the gas in that galaxy are moving. We call that the dynamical mass. And there's actually a move, I'm involved in a survey that's going to be called MANGA, which is another survey which is going to use the Sloan Digital Sky Survey Telescope. But instead of doing images, it's going to make what's called integral field unit maps of galaxies. So these are um, little maps of the spectra. Um, So you have a spectra taken at lots of different points across the galaxy. Um, So you can map out where the elements are, but you can also use the little tiny red shifts and blue shifts to map the kinematics of the galaxy. And so we'll get a map of the kinematics of thousands or tens of thousands, I believe, of these galaxies, and that will really fold in this extra dimension. And by comparing those dynamical masses from the rotation of the stars to the masses we estimate are in the stars from the population modelling, that really helps sort of tie things down. Of course, we always have dark matter complicating things, but we just have to deal with that.
1: (laughs) One of the theories as to how galaxies grow is by essentially cannibalising other galaxies. This must put enormous sort of physical and gravitational pressures on them. So why, despite all that distortion, do we think that we end up with these easily identifiable structures in galaxies?
5: Well, we actually think that very major mergers, mergers that really dis- disrupt things a lot, are not that common. It's been a little bit of a shift in the field from... Thinking that major mergers were the most important route for galaxy evolution—that's certainly how I learned it—but we're starting to shift away from that. We're not seeing very large fractions of merging galaxies. They're not—they're not increasing as much in the early universe as we thought they might. So we're starting—you know—maybe some of these galaxies are quite isolated, or they're just having very minor mergers, very small things coming in, which don't really, you know, they're just a tiny little perturbation. It's like a flea hitting you or something. It's not it's not something that, that the big galaxy is noticing, although it is adding to its store of gas and its store of stars and things. We actually think that the bars in galaxies, it's possible they are triggered by these minor interactions, and there's some evidence for that, although it's still a bit unclear. So the fact that we see galaxies that sit there with very stable disks that don't seem to be doing much for a long time is is sort of a constraint on how many mergers, how many of these big mergers can happen.
1: And now you have access to this army of citizen scientists. What do you want them to do? What Ideally, if you could get them all to look at at one particular aspect, how do you want to use your army?
5: Well, I think one of the beautiful things about this universe is the the variety of, of topics they have available now to citizen scientists but I think the citizen scientists themselves have been very clear that they they'll take on all sorts of different tasks that are quite surprising you're looking at the light curves in planet hunters and drawing bubbles in the Milky Way project all sorts of different things that they enjoy doing but the reason or at least the message that we're getting as the scientists is they like to do this because they want to help with science So I think it's very important that we remember that the projects that we put out, we're not just putting them out there as sort of a fun thing to play with. I mean, they can also be a fun thing to play with for citizen scientists, but they have to be something that we want the answer for right now and that we really need help to to get the answer for. So we think very carefully about what different projects need launching and what what to ask. Um, There is some new imaging from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey that we're currently considering putting into Galaxy Zoo. So that could be exciting. We'll get... Um, I think, 40% more galaxies again. So we've we've already got a large number of galaxies, so we have to think very carefully about what we're going to do with those 40% more galaxies.
1: Dr Karen Masters from the University of Portsmouth.
2: That's almost all we have time for. But first, we've had a question from Wilf James, who wants to know how a small moon like Ganymede can have a magnetic field. We put this to Sam George, an astronomer at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge.
6: Ganymede is a moon around Jupiter... It's the largest moon in the solar system, and actually it's the most massive. It's got something like two times the mass of the moon. It's made up of silicate rock and ice water, and has an iron-rich core. Jupiter has a strong magnetic field, and it was only due to the Galileo spacecraft that we were able to discern that Ganymede itself has a magnetic field. The magnetic field of Ganymede is something like three times stronger than that of the planet Mercury, Um, It actually creates a tiny magnetic field inside that of Jupiter, so it has a magnetosphere. And there's some evidence, actually, that Ganymede even has an aurora, so like the northern lights, but on a moon, which seems a bit strange. And the magnetic field is likely to be generated in a similar way to that of the Earth. So to generate a magnetic field, there needs to be a conducting fluid, enough energy to make that fluid move, and some kind of seed magnetic field. Now, in the case of the Earth... We have a molten iron core, which is a great conductor. There's some convective flow inside the Earth, which produces heat. And of course, the Earth rotates, which makes the fluid move in the right way. And there's an existing magnetic field from the Sun. So as the molten iron streams through the magnetic field, an electric current is formed. And this is called magnetic induction. So basically, Ganymede needs to have a conducting material in its interior. Now, we believe that is the case. How this magnetic field is generated is still a bit of a mystery. It's thought that Ganymede has this iron core, but it's possible that this could have actually cooled earlier on than now, and the fluid that moves around has since stopped. So that's a concern, but there's another suggestion that would say that the tidal forces from Jupiter, the gravitational force on Jupiter, disrupts the cooling. Uh, the tidal energy disrupts the ice sheet and the silicate surface, and this insulates the core. Much more, of course, will be learnt about Ganymede's magnetic field and its composition with the launching of JUICE, which is the Jupiter Ice Moon Explorer, and that's planned to have a launch date in 2022 and arriving at Ganymede in 2033.
1: And if you have a space science question that you'd like answered, send it in to us at astronomy at com, or tweet at Naked Scientists. And that's it for this month's Naked Astronomy. We'll be back next time with more space science, including the exciting discovery of liquid water beneath the
2: surface of Saturn's moon Titan. But before that, we'll have more from Richard and Sue, the space boffins. You can find all this and more on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy.
1: Naked Astronomy is produced by Dominic Ford and me, Ben Valsler, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council.
0: Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy.